back to the Knife at the Gunfight. Uh, we have a great interview today with Baltimore sociologist Dr. Lawrence Brown from Morgan State University about structural violence and apartheid in Baltimore. So stay tuned. here with uh, Dr. Lawrence Brown, in my opinion, one of the most important public intellectuals in Baltimore right now. Dr. Brown, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you coming on. I really respect your work. I'm looking forward, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm hoping to see a book from you in the next uh, year or so uh, the, about uh, your concept of uh, segregation and inequality and looking at it through Baltimore called the uh, White L and the Black Butterfly, something like that. Is that correct? Actually, it's going to be called the Black Butterfly, Why We Must Make Black Neighborhoods Matter. I'm, but I'm also toying with how we must make black neighborhoods matter so that it's more proscriptive. And yes, it should be out late this year, or early next year. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I've, I've given you credit, so correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the way that you... Uh, helped me visualize uh, segregation, investment versus divestment in Baltimore with the idea of a black butterfly, if you look at the map, of black neighborhoods and a white L of white neighborhoods. And just being able to see how persistent segregation is in Baltimore through that lens was really eye-opening for me. And Am I correct? Is that your, uh, is that your concept, your framing? Well, the, I've dubbed uh, East and West Baltimore where black folks are concentrated black butterfly back in 2015. I believe I already heard the white L when I moved here in 2010, when I moved to Baltimore. So um, when I labeled it the black butterflies, it kind of went together with the white L like peanut butter and jelly. So I was like the white L and the black butterfly. <laughs> and uh, you know, I really wanted to give voice to, first of all, the fact that even in the midst of this hyper segregation, that the black, black neighborhoods aren't utterly pathological. They aren't just spaces where people should be viewed in a in a in a negative way. I, I felt like the word butterfly would give voice to this image of transformation, of beauty, of resistance, of potential. And so that was a lot of my thinking behind that. When you you know when you juxtapose those two concepts, the white L and the black butterfly, uh, what uh, what does that mean to you, or what are you trying to communicate? Well, mostly I had already been looking at racial segregation, and Princeton sociologist Douglas Massey and his colleague Jonathan Tannen they wrote a paper about uh, the top trend, top cities that are racially hyper segregated. Um, and looking in that paper, uh, their research paper, there were eight cities that were they considered. Uh, 
Category 5 hypersegregated cities. And Category 5, I use that language to denote intensity, just like a hurricane. So Category 5, the most intense, the most devastating. And so they had eight cities in the Category 5 um, strata, which included Baltimore, Chicago, Flint, Detroit, Birmingham, St. Louis, Milwaukee, Milwaukee, and Cleveland. And so these are a lot of cities we're very familiar with. We know what's going on in Chicago, the Flint water crisis with lead, uh, Detroit and Flint, both were taken over by emergency managers in the state of Michigan. Uh, Cleveland has also had a lot of issues, including lead poisons, just like Baltimore and Flint. Uh, Birmingham has had some issues with violence, uh, three straight years of escalating homicide there. Um, and St. Louis, which has the number one murder rate in America. So it became very clear to me, and that I believe that paper came out late 2014 um, or 2015. It, it really already set the stage for me to understand, like, there's something going on here in these eight cities. And so I felt like the black butterfly and the white L saying that helped to help people to hone in on the way in which hypersegregation might actually be at the root of so many of our issues. And you already brought up uh, lead poisoning, um, which is a major issue in Baltimore uh, and very much follows uh, lines of segregation. And I give a presentation even on an earlier episode about the epidemiology of violence in Baltimore. And the map, the map of homicides looks very similar to the map of uh, lead poisoning, and that very much follows a map if you look at racial and economic segregation in the city. Um, so the, part of that is that right, they're markers of the, of the same thing, but also we know that lead poisoning affects cognitive uh, functions, including impulse control and sort of higher level executive uh, decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those... I want to get to that a little bit, but another phrase that I really like when you use is you talk about the redlining and subpriming of uh, black neighborhoods and how that uh, perpetuates that kind of segregation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I want to take a step back because, you know, you're a medical doctor and you're, you're in your vocation, you're trying to help heal individuals, patients that come through. I'm a social scientist. I'm in the School of Community Health and Policy at Morgan State. I'm trying to heal communities. I'm trying to heal this city. And I think we actually have a very similar process. When you see a patient, you try to understand their history. Well, when I look at my my patient, quote unquote, which are communities, I have to look at their history. I think we have to look at communities' histories, these cities' histories to understand how they aren't working, how they how some na- neighborhoods are experiencing deep trauma and need to have healing. And so my perspective around redlining and subpriming is that these are processes that hurt and harm predominantly black communities um, all across America and definitely here in Baltimore, places like Baltimore, Chicago, Flint, Detroit, those category five hypersegregated cities. And so, you know, redlining and subpriming are these, you know, catch 22, either the banks are denying lending um, or when they do lend, they're doing it at a, at a predatory, in a predatory or in a predatory manner. So, for me, I look at redlining and subpriming as two quote unquote diseases that are impacting the health 
of communities, which of course impacts the health of the people that live in them. So, you know, we talked about redlining, subpriming, uh, uh, lead poisoning, and, and that goes along with rather environmental degradation and how that's segregated. Um, and uh, do you want to talk about other ways that that hypersegregation manifests or is perpetuated by you know policies and practices? Well, I mean, you really just have to go back to uh, 1910, that year when in Baltimore City, Baltimore Mayor John Barry Mahul and the city council, they passed the first residential racial zoning ordinance in America. Um, There had earlier been a racial zoning ordinance out in San Francisco. It was dealing with Chinese uh, folks who were running laundromats there. Uh, So that was dealing with more of a commercial uh, situation in Baltimore, the idea was racial zoning to to block black people from living in majority white blocks and blocks and to stop white people from living in majority black blocks. Blocks and then over time, um, what it would lead to is, of course, if black people couldn't move into majority white blocks, it would become all white. And then if uh, white people couldn't move into uh, majority <coughs> black blocks, then it would become all black. And so I think. Uh, while that may seem to be equal, um, what it did basically was try to push racial or create racial segregation in a way that had never been done before. Um, and it leaned on the 14th Amendment, which is equal protection. So it's like, look, it's equal, but yeah, equal creating residential racial segregation. And so Baltimore passed four of those ordinances before. Finally, the Supreme Court, in a case called Buchanan versus Worley in 1917, struck down those type of ordinances. Um, and from there, there were other policies and practices. In Baltimore County at the time, uh, the Roland Park Company created racially restrictive covenants. And those would become the most powerful way to keep uh, white homes from being uh, owned by black people all across America. They were copied and utilized all across until another decision called Shelley versus Kramer struck those down in 1948. But what you find is that every time there was progress, when the Supreme Court would strike down some form of racist, white supremacist, real estate policies, people would just come up with another form. They would come up with something different, something new to help perpetuate racial segregation. And so Baltimore is at the heart of it. You know, Baltimore helps create racial zoning. Baltimore County helps push racially restrictive covenants and put those on the scene. So, I mean, that history, I think, is incredibly important, and Baltimore is at the heart of it. Right, and, and we also know that the, uh, you know, the Homeownership Loan Corporation practices in 1937, where that term redlining comes from, um, was very racially and economic, you know, a way of codifying racial and economic segregation, but also... Uh, how decisions of investment and uh, uh, loans were um, based on that segregation. But, you know, we're talking about stuff from 100 years ago. Why is that so persistent in Baltimore? Well, in part because we've never done anything to undo it. Um, You know, you mentioned the Homeowners Loan Corporation. That's when the federal government got involved. The federal government, they create the official name is Residential Security Maps. Well, security from what? Security for who? And so these security maps, they color-coded neighborhoods four different colors, red, blue, yellow, or green. 
and those colors denoted which neighborhoods would receive capital. And so when you have a community that doesn't receive capital decade after decade, which is what happened to those red communities where African-Americans lived, then that's how you can have an impact 80, 90, 100 years later because of the dearth of investment, the dearth of capital that was not allocated to those communities. Eventually, those communities fall into deep disrepair and decline. Um, and, and that's the legacy. That's the legacy of se racial segregation is not that, or the impact is not that black people can't be successful without living next to white people. But when you have red line black communities that don't receive capital, that economic weaponization of racial segregation, that's where the damage is really done. That's where you get that lack of capital leading to issues like lead poisoning because lead abatement is not being done. That's where you get to issues like concentrated violence because now in these communities, people are unemployed at high rates and they're living in economic zones where people don't have capital. They don't have income. So they turn to other illegal means to work. So redlining and this sort of, these policies, they set the stage for what happens in the 80s, what happens in the 90s, where we see the rise of crack, cocaine, HIV epidemic, gang violence, gun violence, all of that is rooted in the way that these municipal and federal policies set the stage uh, 56 years before that. You know, we continue to see selective investment and disinvestment. Um, and that's why I think your uh, maps and your concept of the white elm, the black butterfly, makes it very easy to visualize that, you know, the way... Um, public capital from the city or the state is invested in Baltimore. You know, if you put it on a map, it all falls within, right, those white neighborhoods, the white L, these TIF investments. And if we look at the, the school system, which remains predominantly black, and we look at um, disinvestment from that school system and the way that the state decides to disinvest from public transportation in Baltimore, like the aptly named Red Line subway system that was axed in favor of rural and suburban highway construction, um, so, you know, that seems to me to be persistent. Why is that politics of, of exclusion so persistent? And is it, it seems to be, you're saying, more so in those hyper-segregated cities. Mm -hmm. What's different about cities like Baltimore? Well, I think, you know, I actually say that this, the conglomeration, the aggregation of everything you just mentioned, transit, food, uh, criminal justice, all of these, all of these systems um, really come together to form systems or a, a situation that I call apartheid, local-level apartheid, Baltimore apartheid, or Chicago apartheid, or Detroit apartheid, that in these local levels, these policies and practices, they become deeply embedded and enmeshed in the way that the city operates, so that even when you have a putative passage of civil rights legislation, um, these things are already locked into place. You know, uh, white neighborhoods don't magically uh, become black unless there's this process called blockbusting, uh, which actually does flip white neighborhoods, but then they just, a lot of white homeowners move out to the suburbs. So then those communities become and stay majority white, whereas a lot of black communities or a lot of communities inside of urban areas they become black, and then redlining begins to take a hold there. 
Um, so then you have, whereas first at first racial zoning involved blocks and neighborhoods, now we have segregation between cities, uh, often much more between cities and suburbs, maybe than there is within cities themselves. Although in Baltimore, it still plays out that way. So, you know, racism and these policies, they evolve and they take on new forms. Um, and sometimes the dynamic plays out more between suburbs and cities today than it does in the past. But, you know, these policies are so deeply rooted. Um, and even though there were these tremendous civil rights laws passed in the 60s, the 64 Civil Rights Act, 65 Voting Rights Act, the 68 Fair Housing Act, many of them lacked strong enforcement. They rely on the federal government to actually step in and actually enforce those laws. So what happens if you have a president like Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump that doesn't want to enforce those laws? Then the people that are pushing these segregate or wanting to keep segregation alive, they don't have to worry about anything because the federal government isn't going to be vigorously pursuing them under those type of administrations. So that's how you can have these local apartheid constructs remain very vigorously active because the federal government oftentimes does not enforce those civil rights laws in any strong way. And, um, you know, we sort of touched on it, but I think one of the last important pieces of um, how segregation plays out in Baltimore is uh, the criminal justice system and uh, the, uh, you know, the use of violence by the city and the state. The police um, budget is more than any of combined, you know, uh, school, transportation, any other kind of, of social good investment in the city. Um, and we've seen even when there's criminality, rampant criminality in the city police force, it takes an outside institution to even notice. Um, anything else you wanted to say about how, how the criminal justice system um, plays into that and plays out uh, in Baltimore in particular? Well, I mean, I think mostly the ideas around policing, you know, police in America, they grow out of slave catching. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, for instance, had a very powerful effect on how policing operate because that congressional law authorized police to return runaway enslaved African-Americans back to their slave master. That became the function of policing in northern states that that police in the north they had to they had a responsibility to catch and return the quote unquote property of southern slave masters back to them so i think there's no analysis of criminal justice and policing um if we don't take a look at how it's rooted in the form of anti-blackness and making sure that white property interests are actually being served. Um, and so even today, I think there's a great deal of that impulse, this impulse of protecting property over people, of making sure corporate interests have what they want. You know, first during the uprising in 2015, uh, police lined up around the Inner Harbor. You know, they're protecting the property, you know, and, as opposed to saying, how can we actually, you know, protect lives and make sure that someone like a Freddie Gray isn't killed in the process of being taken to jail um, and mysteriously dying in the back of a van. Um, and the criminal justice system has you know, been rife with issues here. Most recently, the Gun Trace Task Force 
uh, eight of the officers in the Baltimore Police Department have been convicted of selling drugs from the uprising. They, they took drugs that other people had got from the pharmacies, and they started selling them back to people um, here in the community. The police selling drugs, you know, planting weapons, planting drugs on people. So the police in Baltimore, you know, oftentimes they function as an entity at war with the community. And literally, the police force has what's called a war room. And when police go on duty, they, they call it a tour of duty. So this language, this mindset of war, you know, plays out very strongly. I think that's the case with a lot of police departments across America, that the idea really isn't to protect and serve, not the people that live in these red line communities. Yeah, I think, you know, you make a, a good point. Even this last week, um, it's Mike Mancuso of the FOP uh, in Baltimore put out this unnecessary public tweet describing trying to re-frame re, uh, the imaging of kids in Baltimore streets as criminals. Um, and one of the other figures that I've written about that I think really, to me, uh, is illustrative of the history of policing in Baltimore is Gilmore. I think it was John Gilmore, who was a Confederate cavalryman an early uh, pol early police chief and the namesake for the Gilmore Homes where Freddie Gray was uh, arrested um, before he ended up losing his life. But one thing I wanted to come back to Baltimore because, you know, you're talking ab about how segregation plays out, but Baltimore is a city that for a generation has had black leadership. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't, why doesn't that, uh, you know, how does that play out, that segregation with black leadership? Mm-hmm. Why doesn't that undermine those that hypersegregation you're talking about? Well, I think that's a question we could ask broadly about, you know, America overall. Even with having a black president, why does racism persist? And again, I go back to the fact that, you know, what we talked about earlier, laws, policies, governments put certain things in action, racial zoning, racially restrictive covenants, race, the residential security map, they put certain things in place. And unless black political leaders come in to actively cancel and dismantle those laws and their impacts, then those laws and impacts will persist. Um, and I think that's, and, but the, one of the ways that that happens is when you have, you know, even though you have black political leadership, most of the wealth is concentrated in the hands of wealthy developers, wealthy corporate interests, and many of those developers and corporate interests are white. And so what happens is you have white corporate developers, white, powerful, wealthy institutions. They provide much of the campaign funding for many of our black elected officials. So even though you may have a black person in office, you know, when people give you money, they expect certain things in return. Um, if they put you know, tens of thousands of dollars into your campaign. So I would argue that many black elected officials really just end up being surrogates. They really just end up being uh, a go-between for white economic interests, but now it's in black space. And I think that's it's a complicated, sophisticated way that racism and white supremacy in America is able to continue on one hand, and I think on the other hand, you just have some black, other black elected officials that don't really have an analysis, that don't really have uh, even a commitment to making sure that we desegregate 
and that we dismantle apartheid. And when I say desegregate, I'm not just talking about black and white people and folks of different ethnic backgrounds living next to each other. I'm talking about desegregating resources. That's where desegregation really has to happen. Um, because wealth, as you know, wealth is intergenerational. And many black communities haven't been able to build up that wealth. And in, and in many ways, especially in urban areas, even though you may have black folks that are putting other black folks in the office, there isn't a lot of wealth that goes into making sure, or there isn't a lot of money that goes into their campaign. So really it's the interest, it's more of an interest game in terms of um, whose interest gets served based on whose money is going into different people's campaigns. You've made some proposals on uh, how investments can be made to undermine apartheid in Baltimore. Do you want to talk about them a little bit? Yeah, I think, you know, the first thing we have to do is give a real jolt to dismantling apartheid. And the way I say we need to do that is through a $3 billion racial equity social impact bond. And what that would essentially entail is half of that would go towards getting lead, toxic lead, out of the environment, removing it from homes, from soil, from the air, from water. Um, Lead poisoning, to me, is one of the very central issues in Baltimore. Lead poisoning, as you mentioned earlier, uh, it messes with people's ability to think, their cognitive behavior, their executive reasoning, their ability to control their emotions. It's correlated with higher levels of violence as the toxicity uh, goes up in the blood. And tens of thousands of Baltimore's children, 95% or more of them black, are poisoned by lead in this city. And that is driving up our crime rate. This is hurting those kids academically. It's hurting those uh, families in terms of their ability to um, live without the impacts of lead poisoning. And then you just combine that with other issues like toxic mold or uh, trauma that also impacts the brain. And from a medical standpoint, it becomes easy to see after a while how when you have all of these health conditions stacked one on top of the other, it's harming the potential and the future of our children here in the city. So half of the racial equity social impact is, is stopping toxic lead and dealing with a lot of the environmental issues that we need to address. And the other half, maybe a third is uh, $500 million is towards addressing housing, making sure we do housing first for folks who are without homes. Um, and then the other billion or so is split up between working to get rid of uh, the transit deserts, the banking deserts, the food deserts, um, and making sure that we have real solutions in those areas. So to me, that's $3 billion is a way to show that we are really serious. And that's money that private funders can give. Um, they can put money into the social impact fund because I believe philanthropies, I believe wealthy people have a role to play. And that's one way they can put money into that racial equity social impact bond to kickstart the process. And then the other solution I have is Baltimore Neighborhood Reparations, which is taking 10% of our city budget for the next 40 or 50 years to allocate to the top 20 or so red line black communities in the city and letting a democratically elected council of 15 people help decide
decide how that money gets spent in those neighborhoods. So I think between those two, um, we have real radical solutions to real radical problems. Wow. Well, you're talking about $3 billion just in Baltimore? Yes, just in Baltimore. That and you know that's a uh, a lot of money more than the city can probably afford, and uh, we have a state that the leadership is hostile to um, to Baltimore City. Mm-hmm. I I the way I see Governor Hogan's coalition is that it's Republicans and then white Democrats outside of Baltimore, mm-hmm. and he dis- divests from Baltimore to fund projects in other areas, and that's how he keeps his coalition. And we have national national leadership that is hostile towards cities like Baltimore. So, mm-hmm. you know, how uh, how do how do we make something like that happen? Well, that's why I said philanthropy, private, wealthy individuals, and everyone really can put money into a social impact bond. Um, it's not dependent. That one is not dependent on government. What I am saying is I believe philanthropy and wealthy people, if they really want to help, have a role to play, and this would be the way to do it. So if there are people who have three, four, five, uh, even six figures to either uh, invest or grant to something, do you have any um, thoughts about how you know we can do that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean certainly I think there's the racial equity social impact bond. You know, the top 25 philanthropic, the top 25 largest philanthropic organizations in Baltimore are in greater Baltimore have a cumulative, uh, I guess, cumulative assets of seven, roughly $7.3 billion. So to me, there is wealth. <laughs> There's serious wealth in the greater Baltimore area. And it's the top, and actually the top two actually have most of that, the Abel Foundation and the Weinberg Foundation or excuse me, the Abel Foundation and the Casey Foundation. So they have, like, between the two of them, maybe $4 billion in assets. So my thing is, if the top 25 wealthiest philanthropic organizations just gave half of their assets to the Racial Equity Impact Bond, we would have the $3 billion immediately. It would transform the city. And that's the way I think we, we need to do it. We need to actually target the resources we do have, put those into the racial equity impact bond to do what we need to do immediately, get the lead poison out immediately. That's what has to happen. Well, something that I've seen uh, in New York and uh, certainly um, cities like D.C. and even cities like Baltimore are at risk is that gentrification here, you know, those uh, red line black neighborhoods, have kind of have switched around. The housing prices went up. People are getting priced out. And unless people own the land and own the housing, um, they're getting pushed out of the neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do you see ownership of the land uh, as part of a process of, of cleaning it, healing it, and addressing the problems like lead poisoning and violence? Well, I think it's fundamental to the process. Um, I believe a lot of the reasons one of the main reasons that contribute to violence beyond lead poisoning um, is housing instability. Um, people not, you know, foreclosures in Baltimore over, you know, roughly between 15, well, excuse me, between five to 6,000 a year. 
uh, rental evictions, Baltimore, according to the Baltimore Sun investigative series a couple of years ago, was number one in the nation in terms of rental evictions per capita. So when you have Baltimore is very efficient at kicking people out of the places where they live. And when I think you have that dynamic, people have this fundamental instability and that contributes to folks uh, really lashing out in ways that are very unproductive. So I think we got to find ways to keep people in their homes. And I think I'm looking at everything from community land trust to housing cooperatives, um, to tiny homes, um, that civics organization here has built a prototype. I think we can utilize that. I don't think there's a silver bullet. I think we have to put multiple strategies into place to ensure housing stability. So we can stop, we can put a moratorium on eviction for six months, you know, give people some breathing room. Let's figure out a better way to keep people in the places where they live. Because right now, as you see in Chicago and here in Baltimore, our black populations are declining in these cities. And that is also true in the cities you mentioned earlier, like D.C., that sort of, it's not just gentrification, it's depopulation. Black people are being pushed out of areas where they live all across the country, Seattle, Austin, Denver, L.A. It's happening. And so I think we've got to figure out a way to make sure that black housing matters and to keep people in the homes where they live and to look at various creative ways to make sure that happens. Wow. This has been a fascinating uh, conversation, Dr. Brown, and I'm uh, hope, hopefully a lot of this, you go into more detail in your book, which I'm anxiously awaiting. Um, but uh, do you want to, uh, I always like to ask for recommendations for, you know, what are you reading? What are you listening to? Art, music, performance that you want to recommend to uh, my audience? Yeah, well, right now I'm listening uh, or reading, actually, uh, D. Watkins' book, um, We Speak for Ourselves. And I, it's a very, I've only read the first chapter so far, but it's really getting into this dynamic of how we listen to people like myself, black scholars, black intellectuals, but we're not listening to lower income black folks. Um, and I think we got to do a better job of that. And his book is actually speaking to that very powerfully uh, so far. And that. I'm also reading uh, Nettie's uh, Okorafor's uh, series called Binti, a sci-fi series that's really helping me um, sort of stretch my imagination. And uh, I guess finally, uh, I've really been getting into comics lately. Uh, only in the past couple of years, I started getting into comic books. So I'm really enjoying uh, like the Black Panther series uh, that Ta-Nehisi Coates has written. And uh, also Nettie Okorafor's Shuri um, and some other independent writers who are like Livewire uh, with Dark Horse. That's a great series. Um, you know, I'm really having a lot of fun with these sci-fi comic book um, authors as well. And uh, I know you periodically have public speaking events. Uh, anything coming up in the next month or two? Uh, I'm actually, well, not anything public. I'm actually getting ready to wind down for the summer. Uh, so when the fall comes, I'll be hitting the road pretty hard. All right. Well, we look forward to it. Thanks again for your time, Dr. Brown. Looking forward to your work and uh, let's stay in touch. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Have a good one.
Thanks again for joining our interview with Morgan State Professor Dr. Lawrence Brown. The music you heard today included Manifest's Wani Abba, as well as Kamasi Washington's Fists of Fury. If you like what you heard, uh, look up our past episodes of the Knife at the Gunfight podcast wherever you get yours. And feel free to reach out to me on social media at Sly Fitz. Thanks again. Hope to see you again next time. Some right with their left, it be left to us to do what's right, yes I they walk through the valley of the shadow of death I know they fear who still got to pep in my step The game be foul, I they watch the ref I know even build a house by the bill to rep Down go take cement, let's get concrete Word on the street, stand on your own two feet More cocksure than unsure Or come for not I conjure the stool for y'all So you can stand on a pedestal Emotia will be ten feet tall I don't need to rob Peter for me to pay poor I don't snooze or snore or booze and brawl I the guy when I go sport there for a ball You might see me smiling when it ain't no good For me this is pure joy for some it's a chore you see me Game for a fool, a dream for the wise, comedy for the rich, tragedy for the poor. This one be roll call. One thing for sure, two things for certain before the catching call. I decay, oh, you could hear, be the talkatives. It's a new year, I know they hear, my prerogative. All white, everything, celebrate with handkerchiefs. Bisa, bisa, kade, I'm running out of adjectives. I got a part to piss in. Vim, Yazo, Charlie, I'm straight, no need to scrape for the council. Laughing to the bank, what a proof, Bob Santo. It gets messy, that means it's Basa, we go advance.